Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental health nor emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he has gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as they individually and personally choose while accepting full responsibility for their own individual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you are acknowledging that you and only you are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. I want to invite you to run over to thelastsymptom.com. While you are visiting, if you feel compelled to make a donation to support my overall body of work, which includes this podcast, that would be appreciated. Today is Wednesday for me, and I'm happy to report that the heat seems to have broke, at least for today, small favors and all that. It has been in the 90s every day now for two weeks with unbearably high humidity. My air conditioner simply has not been able to keep up, and by 3 o'clock in the afternoons, I've been down in my underwear, just trying to be comfortable enough to get anything done. So I hope you've all had better success in staying cool than I have. It got so hot here the other night that there was a knock on my door. And when I opened the door, there was my neighbor, Rocky. And if you want to know what Rocky looks like, Think ZZ Top, or think of an old gold prospector. <laughs> he has a long gray beard and long gray hair, and he's somewhere in his 60s. Well, he come over and he said, Buddy, I hate to do this to you, but uh, I think I need to go to the hospital. I'm not feeling so good. I don't know if it's my heart or what's going on, but I, I got to go to the hospital. We hopped in my truck and we set off. Of course, Rocky didn't want to go to the nearby hospital because he figured they'd just try to put him together with duct tape or something. So uh, we instead drove off to a far-off hospital. This was the very day that I got back from Pennsylvania on that backpacking trip, the same backpacking trip that I described and you actually heard in the last episode of this show. I was worn out, exhausted of being on the road. Well, on the way to the hospital, I started to do my own triage on Rocky. And during the course of things, I learned that he has no air conditioner in his home. No air conditioner. I've had my air conditioner cranked to the max, and it can't keep up. I'm strutting all around the house in my boxer briefs and still dying from the heat. So I had to tell him, you're not a spring chicken anymore, buddy. You're suffering from near heat stroke. So I I cranked the air conditioner in my Jeep. And I turned it full on him, which really was only partly effective because I had half of the roof off my Jeep at the time. But by the time we got to the hospital, he was feeling much better. And then do you know what happened? I ended up being stuck there at the hospital until 7 o'clock the next morning, 7 o'clock. That was a really, really rough night and following day. I had so many cups of coffee in me. The coffee was the only thing animating my body. You know, I was just like a corpse, the walking dead. Uh, 
the coffee would just magically move in my body around the hospital there. At any rate, I'm happy to report that Rocky the Hillbilly is still with us and he's doing fine. To get us started this week in our ongoing conversation about emotional health and borderline personality disorder, let me ask you a question. How reasonable are you? Do you consider yourself a reasonable person? Being reasonable is sort of an art, ain't it? We are all naturally drawn to and admire people who we feel are reasonable. Notice what this does not imply. It does not imply that we always agree with a reasonable person. No, not necessarily. It simply means that even when we disagree with them or we dislike their position, we feel like at least we've been treated fairly, that the person truly took the time to consider all the information he or she had available to him or her and made a fair call, whether it was ultimately the call we preferred or not. Whether we like it or not, at least they were fair and open-minded. Not long ago, I bought my daughter a box of Legos. Do you know how stupidly expensive Legos are? I looked up and down all over the place for cheaper generic Legos, but forget it. It seems that Lego holds an iron firm monopoly on Legos. Go figure. So I bought her a box of Legos as a reward for her graduating from diapers and finally learning to poop in the commode like a normal human being. That's a whole big story for another time. My daughter was dead set against pooping in the commode or toilet. Very particular about it. What she'd do is she'd go into another room, forbid anybody to come in, and that's how I knew she was pooping because she really valued her privacy and she did not like anybody intruding upon her sense of privacy during the act of pooping. So weaning her from that, while at the same time not making her feel emotionally uncomfortable for her feelings about it, took some real patience and skill. In the end, what finally got her to poop in the commode (laughs) for the first time was that a Mexican lady that she just adores was babysitting her. And this Mexican lady convinced her into it. She did it that day, took a picture of it. I'm not joking when I say I'm saving that picture for all time, and I've even thought about putting it into a frame and hanging it on the wall. Her first poop in the commode. You, You can't understand what a big deal this was. So she did it. This Mexican babysitter convinced her into it, and she has never looked back. And yes, it did sting just a bit, just an itsy, teensy, tiny bit, that her desire to please Rosie was more powerful than her desire to please me. 
But hey, who's complaining, right? I don't have to buy or change any more diapers. Cigars and drinks on me all around. Anyway, the whole poop story is simply the explanation for why I went out and bought her these Legos. Big, glorious box of Legos. Yeah, I had to sell my car and work as an exotic dancer for a year to pay them off, but I got her the Legos. And guess what? She didn't play with them. Not once. (laughs) Not once. They just sat around. Well, that is until this week. I don't know what happened, what changed, but she dragged the Legos out and she started to play with them. And she was totally absorbed. She started playing with them in the morning. The afternoon came. I tried to give her some lunch, but she wouldn't touch it because she was so engrossed in her Legos. The Legos were all over the place. Everywhere I went, I stepped on one. And she was doing little voices. ¿Qué tal? ¿Te gusta mi granja? Mira, tengo una granja muy bonita. Hay muchos animalitos. Oh, sí. And she had built this, what she called a farm. And she had all these little pink Lego blocks out there, which she saw as pigs. So all these little pink Lego blocks, which are, you know, rectangles, they were all her pigs. (laughs) She had them in her, her farm there. Nine o'clock in the evening come around. She's still playing with her Legos, but now she's begging me to play Legos with her. Well, I was trying to concentrate on last symptom stuff, and my mind was fully into my work, but I set my work aside. I got down on the floor with her, and I started playing Legos with her. Oh, it was wonderful. We built fortresses and clunky cars and spaceships, all of which you had to squint really hard and use an abundance of imagination to understand how they could be those things. And it got to be 10 p.m. And do you know what I'm starting to realize? That at 44, wood floors aren't as comfortable a thing to lie on as they were when I was 24. So I said, Honey, sweetie pie sugar darling, I'm going to have to take a break here and go sit in my chair for a bit and watch some baseball. If she had a little switch, like a light switch, installed on her little back, when I suggested that I was finished playing Legos, it was like I had just flipped that switch. Her face melted. She looked at me like I had just rejected her and her game, And she started to cry, not spoiled crying, not I'm not getting my way crying. I'm talking about genuine hurt crying, like I had let her down. So I'm sitting in my chair now watching this from her with some amazement. And I said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, We were playing, and you said you were having fun, but now you don't want to play no more, and I don't know what to do, and the world is ending, and who knows what my future will end up looking like now, and on and on it went. And I was was sort of in disbelief, so I tried to reason with her. Sweetheart, the floor's not 
too comfortable for me because I'm old and... You are not old. You're strong and powerful and handsome. Yes, yes, you're right, honey. I am all those things. But what I mean is that the floor is not very comfortable and I just want to take a break for a bit. My knees hurt. I'm tired. And I was hoping to see some Red Sox. You know what we should do, I said? We should move all these Legos up onto the table the next time we play. What do you say about that? She was still crying. Like I say, it was not the type of crying where she's just not getting what she wants. Her little heart was really let down. Some things went through my mind. I remembered me at her age. Me doing the exact same thing to my Aunt Amy. And I remembered how it felt. When we'd visit my grandparents on my dad's side of the family, I'd always hunt down my Aunt Amy. She was still living at home then. And I'd beg her to play with me in the barn. And I can already predict all the jokes going on right now. Not that kind of playing. Not that kind of aunt. Not that kind of nephew. Don't believe the the redneck stereotypes. So I'd beg her to play with me in the barn. And I'd get in there with those hay bales and twine, and I'd build forts and all sorts of things, and I'd make her the bad guy, and I would be a superhero, and I'd be climbing around and swinging around on that uh, twine that they used to, uh, you know, bale the hay. And I just loved playing around on Grandpa's old tractor and having Amy fire it up and take me around. And good old Amy, bless her heart, she always did her best to entertain me. She could go for about an hour or so, indulging me that way and trying to make me happy. But eventually, she'd just have enough. At that time, what I remember about Amy is that she was really only interested in spending time with her horses. And to be honest, I just didn't really care about horses much. (laughs) But I remembered those feelings. You know, the feelings of being let down when she would finally say, okay, I'm going to go check on the horses. And more than this, I remembered what it felt like to play with that eventuality hanging over my head. What I mean is, instead of being able to play and not think about anything except for just having fun with my Aunt Amy, I had to take what little I could get and try to enjoy myself even while knowing that at any time, She was going to cut it short. You really want me to play longer? I said to my daughter. Yes, she said. I like playing with you. And then I realized that as much as she loved her Legos, the Legos could not compare to the feeling of having Dad next to her, participating in the love of that thing with her going to get emotional about that because it was so beautiful. So guess what I did? You guessed it. I got right back down on that ground, joints popping, knees screaming, (laughs) and we played Legos until well, until midnight. But this isn't the end of the story. The next morning, I was awake, catching up on that work, I had neglected the night before when she woke up 
And she came out of the other room, stumbling around, bouncing into things, rubbing her eyes with her hair standing up and pointing every which way, like she'd just been struck by lightning. And I watched her as she weaved her way around furniture and finally ended up at her box of Legos. And she opened the box, and she started taking pieces out. And with her back to me, the first thing she said that morning over her shoulder was, Papa, lo siento por lo que hice anoche. Me porté mal. Gracias por tu paciencia y por jugar conmigo anoche. Dad, I'm sorry for last night. I acted bad. Thanks for your patience and for playing with me last night. I swept her up into my arms and I said, Oh, my little sweetheart, you never had to apologize for anything at all. But thank you so much for saying that. I love you and I loved playing Legos with you last night. Good, she said. Put me down and let's pick up where we left off. (laughs) I'm kidding about that last part. But that whole story is a true story. She really did get up and say that to me first thing in the morning over her shoulder. I'm telling you, my heart just dripped right down through my chest and out my pant leg into a puddle on the floor. You know, when we're reasonable... When we're reasonable people, it has good, unexpected effects, don't it? So I'll ask you again, are you a reasonable person? How reasonable are you? Reasonable people take time to consider the context of things. Don't they? When you take time to consider the context of things, it puts things into better perspective and has the potential to change your reaction or your feelings toward people or things. For example, me getting that image in my head of me as a child nagging my Aunt Amy to play with me and the feelings I was experiencing then allowed me to empathize with my daughter. I imagined her as a grown-up remembering back to her childhood. Would I want her to remember always feeling like every time her dad played with her that at any time he was going to say, all right, I'm done, time to watch baseball. And did I want her to remember the natural feelings associated with that? No, I don't want that to be what she remembers. Reasonable people take time to consider some of the subtle details affecting the person or the situation and to put situations into an accurate context that take a moment and understand it below the surface. It's easy for me to do this with my daughter because I love her. As a quality, this is what love does, naturally. Remember, we've talked in the past about how love is not a feeling, but a quality. 
But now let me ask you this. If you consider yourself to be more or less a reasonable person, how often are you reasonable with yourself? If you're dealing with borderline personality disorder, the answer is probably not very often. How do I know that? Well, because I know for one thing that you don't like yourself. You might like things about yourself, but you don't like yourself. And the very fact that you don't like yourself is in itself unreasonable. A natural result of this not liking yourself gives birth to unreasonable ideas of shoulds and shouldn'ts. For example, I was 13. I should have been smart enough not to do something. Or, I shouldn't be so emotional. Or, I should treat those I care about better. Or, I'm 50 years old. I should have my life together, but I don't. Or, I should have treated my wife better. Or, I shouldn't lose my temper the way I do. These are just some examples off the top of my head, but do you know what none of these internal self-accusations are? They're not very reasonable. I don't like the word should, and that's what they're built upon, should. What do none of these self-accusations include? None of them go on to include context. If you don't believe me, take a moment or two to think about when you do this to yourself, when you play this should-shouldn't game. How often, when you're having these internal accusations against yourself, do you go on to include context with your accusations of what you should or shouldn't have done or do or be doing? Have you ever thought about that? You might be willing to be reasonable with other people from time to time, or at least you probably make a real effort to be reasonable with other people from time to time. But one of these days, you should just count the number of times you fail to extend that same courtesy to yourself. I promise that you will lose count. Long-term followers of mine know that this comes from the very foundation of what borderline personality disorder is. The two distorted core beliefs, or fundamental certainties or perceptions that create the disorder, that are the disorder. And they are, my feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth, and so am I. These two beliefs or foundation perceptions about ourselves and our feelings cannot translate into love for ourselves. They can only translate into loathing. In the past, 
I've described it like being trapped for 24 hours a day with an obnoxious, annoying co-worker you despise. Trapped in a tiny office with no windows. Do you understand the nature of what is going on in a person when self-loathing is involved? It's really strange. It means that a part of your consciousness is sort of stepping back and looking at yourself as if it were a separate thing. And it's making these unfair, critical judgments of everything it sees. The irony is, that part of you is you. It's all you. Even the part that is critical of you is you. So you're making critical, unfair judgments against yourself. Your invented identity just doesn't want to see it this way. Why not? Because it loathes what is there. It rejects that it is in any way associated with that annoying pest. But for a minute, let's practice being reasonable people. Let's be reasonable with ourselves. Let's repeat the examples I gave and provide some context this time around. Because that's what reasonable people are willing to do. And we're all reasonable people here, aren't we? Let's start with the first one. I was 13. I should have been smart enough not to do that. Here's the context. Yes, you were 13. Which means that you were not responsible for any of your mistakes from that time. The same way my dog is not responsible for biting my neighbor. Who is responsible if my dog bites my neighbor? Me. As the responsible party, everything my dog does or fails to do is my responsibility, not my dog's responsibility. You might say, well, a 13-year-old's not a dog, but the same goes for dependent children as goes for dogs. As long as we are dependent on our parents and we have not matured to a state of independent, free agents ourselves, it is our parents who are totally responsible for everything we do or fail to do, which includes all of our mistakes from that time of our life. Because at 13, we are still learning and developing as human beings. At 13, we don't just lack experience and knowledge. We lack the very capacity to skillfully make decisions with experience and knowledge, even if we had it. You believing that at 13 you should have known what you know now at 45 is not very reasonable, is it? What you're doing is judging that poor kid based on all of your current development, knowledge, experience, and hindsight all things which that poor kid did not have access to back when he or she did the thing that you regret. In fact, all 13-year-olds do similar things to what you are unfairly beating your poor 13-year-old self up about. So how about we cut the kid a break, yeah? Do you, don't you think it's time? 
He or she was never responsible for anything that he or she did or didn't do in the first place. And even so, he or she was simply being 13. That's what 13-year-olds do. They overestimate themselves. They get themselves in over their heads, and guess what? It's part of the human process of learning, gaining experience, and maturing into an adult. Now, let's take away the should or shouldn't. At 13, you just made a mistake, and it was part of the human experience. Now it doesn't seem quite as bad, does it? Let's try the next one. I shouldn't be so emotional. First of all, since emotions are never good or bad, right or wrong, I'm going to say that this statement shouldn't exist. It expresses an idea that's built on a false premise to begin with. The false premise that feelings can be a bad thing. Furthermore, there is not a single person who has ever lived in the history of humankind who would not feel those same feelings if they were in the same situation and dealing with the same factors that you're dealing with. So there is no such thing as I shouldn't be so emotional. You're emotional, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Here's the next one. I should treat those I care about better. Here's what I've got to say. You could treat those you care about better if you weren't dealing with trying to unravel and fully understand an extremely powerful and difficult emotional disorder. But the reality is you are dealing with an extremely powerful and difficult emotional disorder. And when you go out and you look up information to try to get better, what do you find? A lot of conflicting bullshit. This is the reality you're dealing with. Because you're working so hard to eliminate this disorder, it shows how serious and important it is to you that you be able to treat those you care about the way they deserve. That's a positive thing. That's not a negative thing. Look around you. Do you see all those people treating their wives, husbands, girlfriends, and boyfriends so well? They aren't dealing with borderline personality disorder. Oh, they want to sneer at you. Well, let's see how they treat other people if they have to deal with the same extenuating factors that you are. The truth is, people who were raised with emotionally healthy parents cannot even begin to fathom the struggle of undoing all of that, of undoing all that damage, while at the same time doing your very best not to mistreat others or be controlled by the effect of the emotional damage that you endured. So yes, mistreating anybody we care about is awful. I think we can all agree with that. It can't be allowed to continue. That's why you're here. You're not allowing it to continue. Now, there are those who mistreat others and never make any effort to get to the bottom of where it's coming from and fix it, like my dad. And then there are people like you and me 
who did or are doing difficult inner work that nobody who has not been in this situation can understand, while at the same time struggling with the tremendously difficult effects of years of emotional harm that we were unfairly subjected to as children. So when you mistreat somebody, that isn't good, and it has to change. As long as you are trying to fix it, genuinely trying to fix it, this is infinitely better than when somebody else does it who never does the work that you are doing. So don't ever see somebody on the news and the world just utterly annihilates that person. You know, their reputation is over. Don't ever compare yourself to that person. And don't ever let people who are only interested in the superficial details of things get to you. They're hypocrites. They have no way of understanding what it is that a lot of people are dealing with. So when you mistreat somebody, that isn't good. It has to change. You already know that. That's why you're here doing this work. And as long as you're trying to fix it, genuinely trying to fix it, this is infinitely better than when somebody else does it who never does the work that you're doing to fix it so that it never happens again. So don't ever think that there's only one category of person who abuses others. There is not. There are people who abuse, never do anything to change, never do any, you know, they say, I'm sorry. That's that's the extent of their remorse, to say, I'm sorry. And then there are people who do something about it. And those people are heroes. The next one says, uh, I'm 50 years old. I should have my life together, but I don't. You know, the same explanation applies here. Think about what you're struggling with. Do you think anybody on earth, except for those handed obnoxious wealth without ever having had to do anything to earn it, do you think any other person on earth could have their life together at 50 while having to struggle with the inner damage and confusion that you have had to struggle with? No, the very nature of borderline personality disorder is such that you are programmed to sabotage yourself and make terrible decisions, often spontaneously on raw motion. Walk out of a job just because somebody said something that you didn't like, and then uh, three hours later you think, crap, I really, really should have given that more thought. I need that job. Tell me any person, given the factors that you're dealing with, who does not realize that they're dealing with an actual disorder until later in life, much later in life, tell me anybody who could possibly do any better by your age. Like I say, there may be some exceptions, but only if they are born into families of extreme wealth and connections already. Most of us, normal people, do not have a person that we can call and be on a television show tomorrow. So no normal person in normal circumstances would be doing any better than you are while dealing with the same factors that you're dealing with. You know, when I sometimes close the show by reminding you to be unusually kind and patient with yourself, this is the sort of inner dialogue I'm talking about. You need to be reasonable and understanding with yourself. You need to stop 
and have these sorts of conversations with yourself. Put an arm around yourself. Help yourself put it all into proper context. Reject that other you. Reject him or her and the messages he or she is trying to communicate to you. Is there a difference between what I'm talking about today and excuse-making? Oh, yes. The two things are not even remotely the same thing. Excuse-making is unacceptable. Do not fall into that trap. Excuse-making is when our motivation is to try to free ourselves from responsibility. Never do that. Notice that in none of our examples did I attempt to free the person from responsibility that rightfully belonged to them. Now, right now, you're thinking about the example I gave of the 13-year-old. Until a child is an adult free agent, they're a dependent. No dependent is responsible for their own care. Who is responsible for a 13-year-old? The parents are. So was I freeing the 13-year-old from responsibility? No, because the responsibility was never his or hers to begin with. That responsibility was always the parents. As 13-year-olds, especially you and I, who grew up with an emotional disorder, we carried that responsibility as if it were ours, but it was never ours. So what I'm saying in that example Recognize that the responsibility was not yours and leave it to the people it did belong to and does belong to. You're only responsible for everything that you've done or have failed to do since you've been an adult free agent. Being reasonable or looking for context is not an attempt to free ourselves from responsibility. Rather, it is choosing to see the reality of the bigger picture. And oftentimes, once we do see the reality of the bigger picture, instead of wanting to stick our necks in a guillotine for our failures, it allows us to relax and instead recognize that most of the suffering we've already experienced is more than sufficient negative consequence to pay. You've been punished enough. Do the work to get better. You've, you've paid your dues. All of the suffering you've been enduring since you were four years old, up until how whatever age you are now, 20, 50, 80, you've paid your dues. 